If you have your Bibles, you can turn them to Genesis chapter 1, all the way to the beginning again. We've been in a series in Genesis for the last month, and last first couple of weeks we only got to verse 1. Last week we got all the way to verse 3, and this week we're going to read the whole chapter. So that might make some of you feel good. We're, we're, we're finally getting somewhere, right? Don't worry, we'll still be in chapter 1 for a while. Genesis chapter 1, listen then, church, to the word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together He called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. 
livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And this is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father God, we praise you for this creation account that we have been studying over the last few weeks. We praise you, Lord, that it has come down to us that we might know that you are the creator of the heavens and the earth and that you are the good creator. We ask now, Lord, as we consider your creation, we consider the goodness of your creation, that you would help us to see it as good and to glorify you because you are indeed a good God. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, throughout the history of man, there has been one escapable question that man has sought to answer. And that question is, how did this world come to be? Where did we come from? And how you answer that question determines how you understand the world and how you understand our place in it. Are our lives in our world formed by chance with an accidental beginning and no destined end at all? Are we simply matter in motion? Is all that we see and experience in this world the product of mindless, meaningless chance? A mindless, meaningless beginning? Or maybe the byproduct of powerful forces fighting against a reigning impersonal chaos. Many of the ancient cosmologies or, or creation myths taught that the world came from chaos. That in the beginning there was chaos. And that out of that chaos came the first gods who then either waged war with the chaos or they waged war with each other and somehow they brought this world into being as they did so. And so it would be that our world was born out of chaos and violence in that case. As we've seen, the biblical account stands out from all of the ancient cosmologies and the modern ones as well. Because in the biblical account, we're told of the one God who existed alone before all things. He had no rival gods, nor did he have a beginning himself. 
And the beginning of all things came from him. He created the heavens and the earth. And though they were initially without form and void, as we read in verse 2, he formed them. He spoke order, light, and life into the world. But this formlessness, this void, simply meant that the world was yet to be ordered and shaped as God intended it to be. It was not the destructive, eternal chaos of those ancient myths. Now, it's ironic when you think about the parallels between some of those ancient cosmologies and our modern myth of naturalistic evolution. Both of them put us in a world that arrived by chance and without intelligent and intentional design. Somehow, in each of those accounts, in all of those accounts, order came out of chaos. An idea that defies Logic, order does not spontaneously come out of chaos. But more to our point for today, chaos and violence cannot produce a good world. They they can't produce an ordered world, nor can they produce a good world. For that, you need a good God. So our focus this morning then is on the refrain that I just read seven times in Genesis chapter 1. That refrain is, and God saw that it was good. The pattern in the creation account is actually much like a song. And in the creation song, each verse tells us what God did in the six days of creation. Each day is like a verse, and we're told what God created. And then after each verse... There is a chorus, there's a refrain that rings out. And that refrain is, and God saw that it was good. And this continues all the way until you get to the very end of the sixth day when God makes mankind in his image. And the final chorus of the creation song concludes with, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So what does this tell us? Well, it tells us something about God and it tells us something about this world. First, it tells us that the world that God made was good. And second, it tells us that God himself, the God who made this world is good. For what kind of God makes a good world but a good God? And who perceives, or we could say determines the good but one who is good. Now that second observation we're going to come back to. But for now, I want us to consider the first simple truth that God made this world and he made it and called it good. So what exactly did he call good? Well, the answer is everything that he made. The land, the seas, the sky, the stars, the sun, the moons, the plants, the animals, all creatures great and small, all the way up to man and woman as the pinnacle of God's creation. So think about that for a moment with me. Aside from being created by God, all of these things are created by God, what do they all have in common? Well, they're all part of the physical, or we might say the material world. Everything, if you look back at Genesis and you skim through everything Genesis 1 speaks of, is the material world, including humans with physical bodies. 
And what this means is that the biblical view of the physical world or the material world is a very positive view. God made it and he saw that it was good and scripture calls it good. Now, contrary to the biblical teaching of this world, there are two isms that I want to address, and then we're going to throw in a third ism as a consequence of the second ism. So our first ism is materialism. Materialism asserts that matter is the primary and fundamental substance of reality. Everything comes down to matter. There's no God who is spirit. There are no angels above and demons below. Whatever exists can be put under a microscope or observed through a telescope. The spiritual world is a myth. Man himself is a physical life form, but he has no soul. Human consciousness and human volition are merely excretions of our brain. And so really, the mind is a myth. And strictly speaking, so is personality. Because really, it's just a result of our programming or our computer. Our brain, which is just a meat machine. Now, the full implications of materialism are devastating, and they lead to absolute meaninglessness, rendering man to be nothing more than a machine or a robot. It erases the realities of personhood and love human culpability and morality. But the creation account rescues us from this nonsense. It affirms to us that behind the material world lies spiritual realities, all of which came from God. The material world is good, the Bible says, but it's not all that is there. The eternal God, who is pure spirit, created a physical world and made man both a physical and a spiritual creature. Man has a body and soul and was made for communion with his God. And this, the Bible says, was good. So that brings us to our second ism. A drastically different idea to that of materialism came about in the first few centuries of the church. This idea recognized both the spiritual and physical dimensions of reality, but it sort of set them opposed to one another. It was a kind of dualism that was called Gnosticism. Those of you who have been sitting in the church history class will be familiar with this teaching. What the Gnostics taught was that the physical world was an unfortunate aspect of reality that man needed freed from. The physical or material world was not good and was not made good, but was the product of an evil God. Now, believe it or not, this teaching worked its way into the early church, and it actually led many Christians astray. The so-called Christian Gnostics taught that the God of creation and the God of the Old Testament was not the God that Jesus came to reveal to man. The Creator God was a lesser God. In some cases, an emanation of the true and supreme God who was the Father of Jesus Christ. The material world was then evil. Even the human body was seen as part of this evil world. And therefore, 
Jesus himself could not have had a real body, but simply presented himself so it appeared that way. And ultimately, salvation was about escaping from the prison of our bodies and this material world. And the way of salvation was to acquire secret knowledge that would enlighten and eventually liberate the soul from the body. Now this helps us to understand, by the way, why one of the earliest creeds of the Christian church began with, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son. This immediately ruled out the Gnostic idea that the Creator God was an evil God and a different God than the Father of Jesus Christ. But you see, one of the things that Gnosticism shows us is that getting creation wrong can have devastating effects. If creation was the work of an evil God and the physical world is not good, but it's bad, then the Son of God could not have taken on flesh and become a man. For what fellowship does light have with darkness? And if He did not become a man, then man cannot be saved. He cannot stand in the place of man. And in that case, man's primary problem actually is not sin and death in the face of a holy God, but his innate physicality. And that complete distortion of Christ and of salvation, it all starts with an erroneous creation narrative, a false understanding of creation, that it came from a good God. And God made it good. Even the material world, especially the material world, was called good. Man, as an embodied creature, was called good. Now, because of its view of the world, Gnosticism almost always led to our third ism, which is asceticism. Asceticism is the rejection of the enjoyment of physical and earthly pleasures. Why? Well, because the physical world and the physical body are evil. Commentator and theologian Michael Kruger says in his book, Christianity at the Crossroads, building on this creation myth, it was common for Gnostics to draw a sharp contrast between the physical world, which is evil, and the spiritual world, which is good. This dualism often led to an ascetic ascetic flavor, that's asceticism, ascetic flavor with Gnostic communities. If the body is evil, listen carefully, if the body's evil, then it must be punished and controlled. Now the Apostle Paul actually warns the Colossians about this false spirituality called asceticism. Listen to what he says to them in chapter 2, verse 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, or it could be translated, still belong to the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things all that perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The problem that the Apostle Paul had with asceticism 
wasn't self-control of sinful desires. It wasn't the denial of sinful bodily desires. Just a few verses later, he tells the Colossians to put their sinful desires to death. The issue was that asceticism conflated physical desires and bodily life with evil. It was that asceticism was all about gaining a mastery over the body by a legalistic form of self-denial. And I say legalistic, meaning man-made laws about what activities man should or shouldn't participate in, what foods one should or shouldn't eat. And on top of all these things, Paul understood that what was behind asceticism was actually the denial, the denial of God's good creation, the goodness of God's creation. That God made the physical world and man as an embodied creature to rightly enjoy the many good gifts that come from his hand. Gifts like food and drink. Gifts like marriage. And so he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 1-5, through now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Now just as it was then, so it is today that Christians can easily fall prey to a kind of Gnosticism and asceticism. And that's partly because we know that there really is such a thing as sinful desires, bodily, sinful bodily desires. But the issue is not with God's design. The problem is not that we live in a material world and have material bodies. The problem is when those desires Those physical desires aren't rightly ordered according to God's design and oriented towards God himself as the ultimate good. One of the characters in C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, said this, there is but one good, that is God. And everything else is good when it looks to him and bad when it turns from him. See, the enjoyment of food and drink, work and rest, sex and singing, art and recreation, all of these physical activities and more have their proper place and are to be enjoyed according to God's design with our hearts oriented towards God himself as the giver of all good gifts and as the ultimate and highest good. The creation account affirms to us that God made us physical creatures in a material world and that this was good. And so we need to guard ourselves from thinking that Christian holiness is a matter of developing a distaste for embodied life in a physical world. Let me just say that again. We need to guard ourselves from thinking that Christian holiness is a matter of developing a distaste for embodied life in a physical world. If your version of holiness is summed up as don't touch, don't taste, don't enjoy, then you've bought into a Gnostic version of Christianity. 
Now, I mentioned before that the refrain in the, in the creation song also informs us that the God who made the world good is himself a good God. This, of course, impacts how we think about God, but it also impacts how we understand goodness itself. Remember the refrain, and God saw that it was good. What is the author communicating to us about creation? Well, that it was good. And on what basis was it called good? Well, the answer is upon the basis of God's judgment. God saw that it was good. That is, in God's eyes, according to God's judgment, what he made was good. Now, some of you at this point are feeling like you're a kid in Sunday school class right now, but just stay with me. This is the kind of simple truth that if if you don't bend down far enough to catch it, it's going to go right over your head. I realize how that sounds. God made the world... And he saw that it was good, and he called it good. Why? Because in the eyes and judgment of God, it was good. You might say, well, of course it was good, because God is good, and God, and only a good God can make a good world. But we have to stoop down a little bit lower than that. If God is the source of all things, and he makes all things good, that means the quality of goodness comes from God. And therefore, he is, God is the standard of what is and what is not good. God is the ultimate good, and He's the standard of goodness. He is the supreme and sole judge of goodness. What He sees as good is good. And it's always good. And what this means for man is that our perspective, our preferences, our feelings are not the standard of goodness. What is good is not determined by what we think or what we say or by the majority opinion on a matter, but rather it is determined by what God sees as good and what God declares as good. So our culture might say, homosexuality is good, patriarchy is bad. And by what standard do they make these judgments? By the ever-fluctuating standard of man set against his maker. The creation account, you see, gives us the right starting point for how man is to understand what is good. God is the ultimate good. And therefore, his being, his design, his declarations are the standard for goodness. All created things are good when they're in their proper place and oriented towards the highest good. And you see, we need this reminder. Christians need this reminder today. We need this reminder Because we live in a world that's constantly trying to define for itself what is good and what is evil. What ought to be pursued and what ought to be rejected. What's worthy of praise and what's worthy of ridicule. And we must remember our place, and indeed man's place as created beings in the image of God. We are to conform to God's vision of goodness Not man's vision or man's declaration. Good is not what serves my self-ascribed identity, my desires, or my plans, or my choices, or my behavior. It is defined by God himself, by his character, and by his judgments. And because God does not change, that means what is good does not change. That means good is not subjective. It's not relative. It is objective because it is grounded in the person and being of God himself. Now, you might be wondering, what was it about his creation that God saw as good? 
We don't have a direct answer for us to that question in, in the text. But I think the old Puritan commentator, Matthew Henry, puts us on the right track. Listen to what he says. It was good. Good, for it is all agreeable to the mind of the Creator. Just as he would have it be when the transcript came to be compared with the great original, it was found to be exact. No error in it, not one misplaced stroke. Good, for it answers the end of its creation and is fit for the purpose for which it was designed. Good, for it was serviceable to man whom God appointed Lord of the visible creation. Good, for it is all for God's glory. And there is that in the whole visible creation which is a demonstration of God's being and perfections and which tends to beget in the soul of man a religious regard to him and veneration of him. A good God makes a good world. God saw it was good because it was exactly as he intended it to be. It was fit for the purpose he designed it for. It was serviceable to man as God's vice regent over creation. And it was good because it testified to God's glory. And it was good because it oriented man toward the ultimate good who is God himself. Now, at this point, I know what many of you are thinking. Many of you are thinking, but what about the fall? Right? What about sin? in light of what happens in Genesis 3 when Adam sins and death and destruction are brought into the world, can we still call this world good? Now the skeptic says, well, if God made the world good, then why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? And the biblical answer is because of the rebellion of man. Unlike Gnosticism and many of the ancient cosmologies, the world didn't begin in a bad way. It wasn't brought about by chaos or violence. It wasn't created by an evil God. You see, all those myths seek to answer the question of why there is evil and human suffering in the world. But they do so in a way that writes evil and disorder into the very DNA of the material world and into the DNA of man himself. So it's wholly negative and it's wholly hopeless. The creation account says no. It all began with a good God who made a good world. Goodness, actually, was woven into the fabric of creation, the fabric of the cosmos. And man was the crown of God's creation, made in God's image, male and female, made to enjoy the goodness of God's world and to reflect that goodness himself. But instead of heeding God's good command, man turned away and sin and death came into this world. But we still have the question, should we still call it good then? Now, there's a sense in which the answer is yes and no. So let me explain. The Bible teaches that because of Adam's sin, death and, and sin spread to all men. In Genesis 3, we read that God cursed the ground to make Adam's job more difficult. The woman's curse was pain and childbearing. So we see that the sin of man brought pain and suffering into God's good world. Human nature itself was radically affected for since Adam, man has been absolutely inclined toward rebellion against God. All of that is true, yet 
in spite of all of that, the Apostle Paul was still able to say to Timothy, the verses I just read, that everything created by God is good. And there he's speaking of the natural or the material world. And so there's a sense in which we have to say the natural world is still good. Yet to quote commentator John Collins, it is now the natural world, it is now the arena in which mankind expresses his sin and experiences God's judgments. And because of this, there are things like natural disasters and human tragedies of all sorts. Though the natural world is good, we could say, it has been subject to the destruction and the decay brought about by man's sin. And though our bodies are good, even more so, they have been subject to destruction and decay brought about by our sin. But you see, the problem is not with the fact that we have bodies. The problem is not that this world is a material world. The problem is sin in the heart of man, beginning with Adam and coming right down to us. Sin that brings chaos into, or, into the order that God made. Sin that subverts God's design and turns it upside down. Sin that forsakes the good. Sin that sets man and self in the place of God. Sin that worships the creature rather than the Creator. So what we need, what man needs, is not an escape from embodied life in a physical, material world. What we need is a new Adam. We need a man whose heart is pure and true. Free from all sin. And we need that new Adam to save us from the penalty and the power and even the presence of our sin. We need one who gives us new hearts and restores us back to God and then orients our hearts back to God Himself as the ultimate good. And we need one who can defeat death for us and has the power then to raise our bodies up, no longer subject to destruction and decay that sin brought about. And so in short, we need Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 5.17. If because of one man's trespass, that is speaking of Adam, if because of one man's sin, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that though sin and death reign through one man, a new man, Jesus Christ, has come, bringing grace righteousness, and life. We're all covenantally united to Him by faith. And you say, what of our bodies? And what of our hope as we look to the end? Well, listen to Paul in Romans 8.22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly 
for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The Christian vision of the created order is that it is good, but that it has been made subject to decay because of man's rebellion against God. And the salvation that we need is not escape from this material world, but a rescue from the eternal consequences of our sin and the redemption of not only our souls, but our bodies. And indeed, even the renewal of all things, the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells in the land. So that in the end, God will again be able to say, of all things, both physical and spiritual, it is all very good. And the great refrain of the creation song will ring out again in the last line of the song of redemption. And all of God's people will sing their praise to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, maker and redeemer of heaven and earth. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we thank you that you are a good God and that you made a good world and that you are remaking this world through your Son, Jesus Christ, that goodness will in the end be displayed in your creation, even right now in your people, how you've changed our hearts and oriented them towards you as the ultimate good. It shouts of your goodness that you are a good creator and you are a good redeemer and savior. And for this, we praise you and we thank you. And it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Who lives with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and for all time. Amen.